Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, and let's begin in verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that he may see, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph, Joseph and Salome who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he had he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which was, had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Let's pray together. Lord, we just can only gaze and wonder what you went through as you looked at your son on that cross and as you turned your face away, which was required. Lord, we don't have no idea, Jesus, what you went through, but we worship you for what you went through. Would you use these verses this morning to work on our hearts? as you intend. All of your plans, all of your purposes for these verses we want realized in us. Help our hearts, Lord, to be completely open to what your Spirit wants to do in our, in our lives. And we yield ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're right in the middle of Jesus being on that cross, being crucified for our sins, taking the punishment that we deserved. And we don't even know what he went through. We don't even know the fullness, not even close, of what he went through on that cross. We are only scratching the surface. Any teacher that attempts to teach this feels inadequate feels inadequate any time we go and try to teach God's word, but especially covering the cross. 
because there's so much mystery there. Not, not the biblical word for ministry. The biblical word for ministry, for ministry is, means it is previously hidden, but now it's been revealed. But for us, in our English language, what mystery means is we don't know now. And we look at that, what he went through, and we can just are scratching the surface. But what we can apprehend by the Holy Spirit is supposed to produce something in us, very profound. And the danger for each one of us is to have familiarity harden our hearts or to have these things become so familiar that they lose their special place. And we have to work at keeping our hearts soft towards these things and to want to learn more and to want to glean from the verses and, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us and to really want to understand what he went through because we love him, John the Apostle said, because he first loved us. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is everything. Our whole entire Christian walk is supposed to be a response to what God has provided. We're not the initiators. We're the responders. Legalism teaches that man-made rules initiate things for God to respond to us, to get us to love and accept us and all those things. They have it totally backwards. Man-made religion is all about initiating. It's all about doing things to try to get something from God. Christianity is the opposite. That God is there trying to, he's initiated everything. He's provided everything for us. And all he wants for us is to, to properly respond to what he's done for us. The Christian life is a beautiful, beautiful response to what God's already done for us. It melts our hearts. But familiarity can come in and we can, it's, can lose its, it can lose its majesty in our hearts. And so he wants to have that rekindled in us. He also wants us to be like Jesus on the cross. Is, I mean, I know obviously we can't be in so many ways, but, but just to be up on that cross and to be suffering, being in the middle of God's will, Jesus was right in the middle of God's will, being suffering and being in the middle of God's will and being submitted to that and to be willing to forgive people that are trying to hurt us in the middle of all of that situation, being in the middle of God's will. And, but yet, when we have sincere questions and, and we have something that we want to express to God, we can voice that out to Him and He can handle it because we are sincere when we're crying out from our hearts. So related to the cross here, He's already been nailed to this cross. These, as we'll see in a minute, Pilate's going to be surprised that he's still alive or that he died so fast. Because it, it, the, cross, the crosses, and there was thousands, and we're getting into the numbers here in a minute, but so, it was such a normal thing to see people hanging on crosses. It was very, very typical. And it was meant to just drag out that pain for so long. They could kill people instantly, of course. And they did many times. But the cross, that, that punishment was supposed to drag on, have death drag on for a long period of time. And, and, and they had to break, if you remember from the account, they had to break the legs of the, of the other two um, thieves on the cross because they hadn't died yet. But Jesus had already died because what he had gone through was something, not even touching the, the scourging and the, all that he went through before, but the most, the most brutal part of the whole entire thing is what we're going to see today when the sin of the world was being placed upon him. And the wrath of God that, that the collective mankind, collective humanity, from Adam's sin all the way into the last person, uh, human being that's going to sin in this life, all of that wrath, all that due punishment was placed upon him for, those, for, for that time period. And, and that's what's going to, basically, as it's been said, he died of a, a heart attack in the sense of just giving up his spirit and just having a broken heart from the, 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 the power of and the effect of the sin of the world being placed upon him. So we went through a lot of it already, but we're up to verse 24. Let's start there. 
And we're told in verse 24, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. And I, I noticed here when I was studying this that what a contrast. They're thinking about what they should take. Jesus is all about what he can give. He's being the ultimate giver now, giving his life, offering his life. And here they were gambling for his garments, like a keepsake or a trophy or whatever, to see who's going to get what. So they crucified and they divided his garments. That's prophetic. We'll see in a moment. Um, and they cast lots. And they let, the, they, like, basically the, the, the effective uh, or... or um, basically like cast, uh, drawing straws or whatever, casting lots to determine what they should get and what, who's going to get what. And then we're told in verse 25, now it was the, the third hour and they crucified him. Now the Jewish day started at 6 a.m. That's when the day started. So you'd start counting for the new day at 6 a.m. So the third hour is 9, 9 a.m. He would be on that cross for six hours from 9 a.m., to 3 p.m. So we're told that there, and um, that's when they, they crucified him. He'd already probably not got very much sleep the whole night before. Um, I mean, in between, you know, everything happened the night before with the, all the stupid trials and the mock trials and all of that and being beaten and all of that. So he's likely been up the whole entire night, and then now he's crucified here. We've already seen someone had to take his cross carry his cross because he was so weak and everything. And then we're told what was put above his head, verse 26. The inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. And we're told that it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So Hebrew was the language in that area of religion. Um, the language of Greek was the language of commerce because they had... Koine Greek, which means common. So they had, they had like a slang Greek. That's the, what the New Testament was written in. It wasn't classical Greek. They used a slang version of, of Greek that was because of all the trade routes and doing commerce and all of that. That was the, the Koine or the common Greek. That's the language of commerce in the area. But then also they put it in Latin, which is the language of power, because that was the language that the Romans spoke. And they were under the... the the occupation of the Romans there, and they hated that. So all three um, languages, it was put the king of the Jews. And then we were told in another gospel that the religious leaders wanted it to be, one to say he claimed to be king of the Jews, and Pilate said, I've written what I've written. And so the truth was put on there. He, he was and is the king of the Jews. He's, he's more than that as well, but that was put, placed there. And that was a common thing. They would put their accusation above them on the cross. It could have been anything. It could have been tax evasion. It could have been um, you know, insurrection. It could have been all these other things. And it was probably one of the very few things, times, where an inscription is put on there that has to do with religion that because they weren't dealing on that level of religion, the Romans. And so they, but they put that on there because that was his accusation against him. Verse 27. With him, they also crucified two robbers. So they were both robbers. They were both thieves. One on his right and the other on his left. So the scene is, and we see it often in pictures where you have three crosses there. And so we have one on the left, one on the right. He's in the center there of that scene. And then we're told that that fulfilled Scripture. So the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Basically, he was counted as one of the transgressors. He was just with a bunch of transgressors. That's the Savior of the world. That's the King of the Jews. That's God in human flesh. He's just numbered. He's just one of, one of many transgressors. That was the, the idea behind that. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, Save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, th this, there's an interesting thing that the Holy Spirit includes here that many people pass over, and that is blasphemy. How can he be bla blasphemed if he's not God? If he's merely a man or a good teacher or a prophet, 
you can't blaspheme those types of people. You can only blaspheme God. And they blasphemed him, wagging their head. You know what wagging your head is? Just shaking your head. You don't like to see that anybody do that. It's a sign of dis, kind of disgust. When someone wags their head, they're just, you know, unfortunately, we need to have braces on our necks in traffic. Uh, because sometimes when someone cuts us off or does something, we're shaking our head, you know, and that's usually on a good day, <laughs> you know. Uh, but we want to, you know, wag our, our head. Um, sometimes there's an, a short p- version of that for the people put on social media. It's SMH, shake my head. And that's what they're talking about here, wagging their heads and saying, aha. Now, when you say aha, it's like, gotcha. It's like, I finally proved to you that I'm better than you. I'm finally showing that you've been caught in a lie. Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. And that was a false accusation. He didn't say that he would destroy that temple and rebuild it in three days. He was referring to his body. And, and they didn't even fully get that until after he rose from the dead. And so he said, so they said to him, you know, if you think that you can do that and rebuild the temple, then surely you can save yourself. Because remember, they had heard about and seen, many of them had seen these raisings from the dead, these healings of leprosy. They, a lot of them were eyewitnesses to, this, that, to these things. And all the, whole t- the whole entire time, you have the Pharisees, the religious leaders saying, he does it because of Satan. And he, and he addressed that at one point and dealt with that, that uh, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand, that Satan cannot cast out Satan and all those things. But, the, 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 you know, we know today from the election and how the media is, they just keep repeating the same things over and over again, even if they're not true, hoping that if they say it enough times, it'll infiltrate and embed itself in people's minds, and it works to a point. And they just kept saying, he just does it by Satan, does it by Satan. So, yes, it's supernatural. And then they, were, then they added on, basically, if this guy was really who he says he is, he could come down from that cross. Couldn't you see the skeptic saying, to, to, to people that were kind of confused. Well, he, if he raised people from the dead, if he healed leprosy, what, what's three nails? See, it's, it's, he's a phony. And, and they just kept saying that over and over again. And they're saying, if you, if you can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, you can save yourself. Come down from the cross. And then the chief priest added to, to that in verse 31. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others himself, he cannot save. And that's ironically a true statement, even though they didn't mean it the way that we know it to be true. Because he did save others. And for him to save salvation-wise, for spiritually being saved, for him to be able to do that, he can't save himself because he already went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He already prayed to the Father multiple times that there's another way for this to happen. Let this cup pass for me, the cup of your wrath. Let it pass, and it didn't pass. There's no other way mankind could have been saved. Again, don't ever be shy about saying that Jesus is the only way. Jesus paid such a high price for us to be able to be the only way We need to stay true and be bold and say he is the only way. He's the only one that the Father um, arranged and only could be arranged to die for the sin of the world because it's about righteousness. And we cannot do enough good works to outdo our sin. And all the other religions teach I have to do this and this and this and this and then I can earn a right standing with God. All the other religions are man's attempt to reach God through works. Christianity is the only one where it's God's attempt to reach man through the cross, and have it be a free gift. That's the distinction there. So he couldn't save himself. That's right. He, 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 that was it. He can't save others if, if he's going to save himself. Verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now he could have done that. Do you think that would guarantee that they would have turned to him? I don't think it guarantees it. They could have said it's by Satan that he did it again. I mean, that's where man's heart is, how bad our hearts are and how wicked our hearts are. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Think about that. These are known thieves 
And they both, now we're going to get into what happened to those men, but they both reviled him. Not just one of them, both reviled him. Everybody mocked him. One historian has said the average time it took for a person to die on the cross was 32 hours. So think about a 40, you know, 24, 48, so day and a half. But the, the longest that ever been recorded way back then was 13 days. Someone actually stayed alive for 13 days on the cross. And the, the birds of the air would come and start picking at the bodies. And just, it was horrible. They had to push themselves up by that nail to breathe because they couldn't breathe. And they had to push themselves up. It was just this constant... He's pushing up, pushing on that nail to breathe. And it was just supposed to be this horrendous, long-term, suffering-type death, and it, and it was. But there would be 50 to 60 miles of crosses all around. It was very common to see it. If you were a child being raised in that area, you would be see, you'd see this all over the landscape. It was very common to see people hanging on crosses. And it's so sad that the chief priests mocked him, too, along with these um, these thieves. Everybody's mocking. The people, the leaders, the criminals. There's nobody that's not mocking, basically. And they're just, it's just cruel. It's just cruel to mock somebody. Imagine mocking someone while they're at the firing range, you know, getting uh, killed or, or at the elect, in the electric chair or at the gas chamber, just mocking them as they're dying. I mean, we don't even do that today to people that are serial murderers or killers or whatever. We don't do that, but they're mocking him while he's, while he's dying. One of the things he says is, in Luke, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just think of that. Just think of that capacity to forgive. He's just extending that forgiveness to them openly, just giving that forgiveness. We have no excuse for not forgiving. Stephen did this. When they were stoning him, they were hurling these massive boulders, rocks down a ravine onto him. No capacity to defend himself against those things. He said the same thing. We can say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Of course he can say that. He doesn't have a sinful nature. No, pe- <laughs> Stephen didn't have a, had a sinful nature. He said the same thing. We have to forgive. We have to have, live lives that are forgiving type lives. And, and so he said that. And but then one of, we're told that one of the thieves comes under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he says to Jesus, he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that statement is saying a lot. It's saying that you're going to raise from the dead. You're going to outlive this. You have a kingdom, which means you're a Lord. There's a lot of things he's saying in there. And Jesus refers uh, or answers and says, truly today you'll be with me in paradise. No sinner's prayer. No four spiritual laws. Jesus knew his heart. He put his faith in Jesus. And when Jesus descended into Hades, that thief was going to be with him. And he was going to see the Old Testament saints. And then eventually um, be resurrected to heaven. So, beautiful picture of of God's grace. Those two individuals... That we, that we see in our passage reviled against him. Another passage talked about Jesus' forgiveness towards them. They began in the same place on that day. They were the same distance from Jesus approximately, maybe exactly, I don't know. They heard the same things that Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They heard a lot of the same things, but at the end of that day ended up in two completely different places. Not everybody that dies goes to heaven. I know everybody wants to believe that. They want all, they want to believe that everybody just, that's just where everybody goes when they die. They go to heaven. The Bible does not teach that. If you believe that, you are contradicting what God's word says. And his word will outlive the heavens and the earth. I have people, when I officiate funerals, want me to say where this person is. I don't know where that person is. I barely know where I am. I can't say where that person is. And if they lived a life in willful disobedience to God, for sure I'm not going to to say that they're in heaven. 
You know, I mean, we don't know what happens in the last moments of life, the last nanoseconds of life. None of us can know. They can live a completely horrific life, and in their last breath, in their, they, there could be salvation that happens between them and God, especially if they were in a coma or whatever. We don't know what happens. We can't make that judgment. He hasn't left it up to us. But one thing we do know for sure is not everybody makes that decision before they die. That's why we have to be ready today. We, we don't know when we're going to, to, to be with him. We just have to have our reservations. We have to be ready. Now he looks down another thing from another passage. I'm just covering some more things that we're not seeing in our passage per se to give the, the full picture because it's going to be a little while since we're back here again in, the, in, in um, seeing the cross. Through his eyes, they're probably hard for him to even look out of because of blood coming down from his head and so forth. He sees his mother and he sees John the apostle, and he says, Woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, Behold your mother. He didn't say that to his brothers. His brothers are still alive, his half brothers. He said that to John. Because James likely didn't come to Christ till after he rose from the dead, or probably the same with his brother Jude. Um, but he said it to John the Apostle, who was at this point probably just 18 or 19 years old. When he met Jesus, he probably was 15 or 16, very, very young. He, I mean, he wrote Revelation between uh, A.D. 90 and A.D. 95. Right now, this is between 29 and 33 A.D. So he's very, very young. And the, the Lord Jesus looks down, and, he, and he, out of respect, he says, this is, you, you know, this is your mother, this is your son, and he doesn't say, um, behold our mother. He says, behold your mother. John, you're going to take care of her. She's, I'm not designating her everybody's mother or that we all should venerate Mary higher than we should. He's talking about taking care of her and, and, and um, blessing her and so forth. By this time, his, his father, his earthly father, Joseph, had already, already off the scene and already probably had passed away at this point. So all these things were happening in the first three hours between 9 a.m. and noon. But then noon comes, verse 33. When, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, so from noon to 3 p.m., there's darkness over the whole land there and, and over, I believe, the whole earth. Luke tells us, who's very specific with his terminology, he says that the sun was darkened. And I believe that he was correct in that. God can interrupt anything. He can, because there's all kinds of implications if he temporarily made the sun go out, obviously. But he can, he can compensate supernaturally as well. And there was darkness, I believe, over the entire earth at that time, from 12 to 3. Now, they weren't prepared for this. They hadn't lit a bunch of lamps to prepare for evening and everything. It was dark, dark, dark. Probably you couldn't see your hand in front of you very well at all. And the moon, of course, normally you're not going to have the moon and be in a position to be able to see. And if, this, if the sun's out, of course, that's reflecting the light off the sun. Um, it doesn't generate its own light. I don't know if you knew that. If you didn't know that, that's a bonus today. If you thought that the, if you thought that the, the moon actually generates light, um, you're like, wow, I didn't know that today. So, great. Uh, so, here we are at, at this point there from noon to three. Darkness over the whole earth. The sun was darkened. They weren't prepared for it. Um, and then we're told, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want us to turn quickly to Psalm 22. And we'll see what this is the most vivid, one of the most vivid accounts, I would say the most vivid account of what Jesus went through on the cross. And if you're new to the Bible, or if you're uh, here and you don't know the Lord and you consider yourself a skeptic and you want evidence that Christianity is, can be trusted, what we're about to read in Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Psalm 22. Verse 1, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? You ever felt that? You ever felt and prayed to God, God, why are you so far from helping me? Jesus, Jesus had the same thing in his heart during that time. And from, the word, and, and from the words of my groaning. You ever felt like your prayers were hitting the ceiling? They don't hit the ceiling, but you ever feel like they do? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, am, uh, and am not silent, but you are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel. Verse 4. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. You ever felt like that? I'm not even a man. I'm not even a human. I'm just a worm. And I'm a reproach of the people and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. Notice the word all. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head. There's the wagging of their heads. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So fulfilling prophecy, those people said that at the cross. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like the raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Note that. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, they, David wrote this, inspired by the Spirit. Again, 1,000 years before Christ. They hadn't even invented crucifixion yet. Okay, that's, that's how God... How, how amazing God's word is. They haven't even invented crucifixion yet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide garments among them, and, they, and for my clothing, they cast lots. I just want to stop there, and we can turn back to Mark chapter 15. I want to focus in verse 34 in our passage on the word why. My God, my God, Why? Have you forsaken me? We ask why in this life. We don't understand why God allows what he allows. Jesus didn't understand the fullness of why this had happened. In some level, I don't understand how that could be. He knew Psalm 22, of course. His spirit inspired David to write it. He wasn't just acting out a scene that he knew he had to have, you know, do this to fulfill prophecy. This is sincere and some people read it this way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can understand why everyone else would forsake me, but I don't understand how, why, why you have forsaken me. But the answer is it was necessary because of our sin. God was looking down at the, at the sun with the sin of the world laid upon him. And he couldn't look upon that sin. He turned his face away. I don't know what that means in, in the mystery of the Godhead and, and how the Godhead works. We're talking about one God here. But somehow in that relationship, while he was incarnate here on this earth, he was forsaken in that way by the Father. And there was something that he reacted to sincerely from the cross. And it's, it's, it was necessary. There wasn't one thing that didn't happen that wasn't necessary. The father would not let his son, whom he loved, go through one thing that wasn't necessary. It's, it's all related to what we deserve. Because in our, in our punishment, in terms of what we deserved, we deserve to be forsaken. We deserve to have God turn his face from us. And at this point, Jesus is more alone than any human's ever been alone. 
We have the Father right now as Christians and as unbelievers. We have access to God by receiving Christ. We have, it's, he's, it's available any second. It's available for an unbeliever. Jesus didn't have the Father available to him at this moment. No human had ever experienced that in this way. It's, it's un- unbelievable. Verse 35. Some of those who stood by when they heard that, when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Now, we saw in Psalm 22, I told you to remember that his, his tongue was stuck to his jaw of dehydration. Can you imagine all the, the liquid that he is losing, blood and water and all of that. He's lost it for hours and hours and hours. He is completely dehydrated almost to the point of death at this point. And he, he, he cannot speak well. And when he says, Eloi, Eloi, it's, it's, he's not able to pronounce that the way that he normally could. So Eloi, Eloi sounds like Elijah when, you're, when your mouth is, is not working right. So they're thinking that he's calling for Elijah, that somehow Elijah's going to come because he didn't die. He, got, he, he was taken. Um, that somehow he was available to come and help him, and they're waiting to see. Now let's wait there. And then... He, someone, in verse 36, they ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it him to drink, saying, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out a loud voice and breathed his last. Now turn quickly over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and I wanted to begin reading in verse 28. John 19, 28 says this. After this, this is after he said, you know, behold your mother. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. So here you can kind of see, and you can turn back to to Mark now. You can see that because of Psalm 22, his tongue was sticking to his jaw, and, and, and he had a hard time speaking. But because everything had been accomplished, because notice, well, you can't notice Kerry turned back, but in in John um, there in 19, verse 28, it we saw this, knowing that all things were now accomplished. So he hadn't died yet. So something had been accomplished before he died. See, that's, we think that everything happened the moment he died. And that's when everything happened related to him paying the price. But actually, it was the whole entire time he was on that cross, especially those last three hours when it was dark and the sin of the world was being placed on him and all those things. He was taking the wrath that we, that we uh, had coming that we deserved. He took all of that. So when he says, we're now accomplished, he hadn't even died yet, but he wants to tell, he wants them to understand because they couldn't understand him when he, when he was saying, uh, Eloi, Eloi, uh, lama sabachthani. They couldn't understand that. They misunderstood it, thinking he was calling for Elijah. He wants to say, it is finished, and he doesn't want anyone to mishear him. He wants them to understand that. So he said, I thirst. So they gave him the sour wine so he could have his mouth wet to where he could say it and they could hear what he had to say um, and to be able to say, it is finished. Now, I want to talk about it is finished. It's tetelestai. That's the word, tetelestai. When they would pay, when they would say that your debt's been paid and you were making payments on something, they would stamp it and they would, the stamp would say tetelestai. If you had served a sentence in prison on your documents to show that you had served all of your time, they would stamp tetelestai. So he was saying, it is finished, paid in full. Isn't that great news? Paid in full. Everything's paid. So those of us that try to pay for our sin, that's why, that's why penance in Roman Catholicism is blasphemous. Because you're basically saying it wasn't paid in full. When, when, the, when you have the Roman priest, and there's plenty of error in Protestantism, so if you're here today, I'm not just beating up on Roman Catholicism. I'm equal opportunity, you know, on anything that's not biblical, no matter where it's found. 
even in my own life. When the priest holds up that wafer and that bell is rung by the altar boy, they believe that Jesus is dying on the cross all over again. When they raise that cup, they believe he's dying all over again. It's called transubstantiation. And, and so that's blasphemous, to believe that I can do some kind of penance, some kind of prayers, or any kind of works to make up for my sin is going back in a time machine to Jesus on the cross and saying, liar! It is not finished. Because 2,000 years from now, I'm going to have to do all these things. I'm going to have to do penance. I'm going to have to do all these things. Or even maybe you don't, or I may not be tempted to do that, but we try to do better to make up for our bad stuff. Do you do that? If you do that, you're not understanding paid in full. You're not understanding to tell us die. We can't do good works as Christians to make up for our bad works, our sin. He doesn't tell us to do that. Well, you know, you did poorly that day. You need to try extra hard the next day, and you need to make up for that the next day. That is a works-based relationship with God. When we fall short and when we sin, his answer is confess it, and repent. Ask forgiveness. 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Christian bar of soap. We need to confess, repent, and, and that's what we do. Then we forget about it and move on. But you know why? Because he does. Our sin is tossed into the sea, never to be remembered against us anymore. He died for us. He took all of the sins that we haven't even committed yet, and he's paid for those. And, and what, that's what stops our growth, is we try to make up for stuff. There's no making up with God. You can't make, <laughs> do good to make up for bad. If you're, if you're in a marriage, how many of you are married? Raise your hand. Okay? Let's say your spouse does, sins against you and does some things that are horrible. Do you want to receive a bunch of good stuff and, and do you accept that that's making up for all the bad that he did or she did? Or do you just want them to apologize and, and, and say they're not going to do it again or whatever and then just do the good things because they love you? See, it's, it's so much the same way with God. He wants us to love him because we love him and do good things because we love him and what he's done. Not to get tripped up by what we've done in the past. Let's leave it in the past. Let's move forward. There's a reason why one of the things that we outfit ourselves with related to how we live is the armor of God, which includes the helmet of salvation. We could be taking off our helmet of salvation by trying to make up for the sin that we've committed, and we're going to get smacked with the darts of the enemy doubting our salvation and all those things. Keep that helmet of salvation on. Those things protect our, our thoughts that are against the security of our salvation. Very important for us to see that. It's beautiful. He says at one point, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's important for us to know. How many believers down through the ages have said that when they're breathing their last breath? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's trust there. There's trust. And, and, and that's a great model for us. But he committed his spirit. No one took his life, as he said. He lays it down. From man's perspective, he was murdered. From God's perspective, his life was given. Look at verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. One of my favorite verses. That veil separated the holy of holies from the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, and only after his sins were atoned for, and that's it, to go in there and sprinkle blood on the altar there. And that, was, that, temp, that, that veil that's been recorded is you know, 60 to 80 feet tall and feet thick there, and it was ripped, notice, from, in two from top to bottom means that God's initiating access. That's the whole word for that scene is access. We don't have to go in through a priesthood anymore. We can, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have access to him one-on-one. -on -one. No leader, no human should ever be a go-between between us and God. I don't care, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, cult, 
whatever it is, we don't have to go through any person anymore. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, we're told in Scripture. And, and God delights in that more than we do. He doesn't, I mean, he designed the priesthood in the Old Testament for a purpose. It was all going to point to Christ being the, the great high priest, the priest in the order of Melchizedek. But right now, we can't be a mediator. No pastor, no leader, no Christian. And people want to give us that place because it's easier than walking by faith. It's easier than having your own relationship with him. Oh, I'll just do what the human tells me to do. Much easier. But God says, no, don't ever take that place. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. A centurion was a very high-ranking member of the Roman military overseeing a thousand or a hundred soldiers. That's what centurion means. Century, it's a hundred. Very responsible. And this man, I'm sure he became a very, very strong disciple of Jesus Christ, but he heard him say that and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. We're going to meet that guy someday. We're going to meet that centurion. What was it like to stand and hear him say that? And what caused that in your heart to just surrender your life? And what happened after that? How did you live your life as a result of that? And did, it end up, did you end up dying for your faith? Or did you get kicked out of the Roman military? And how many people you know, did God use or save through your life and all of that? We're going to be able to meet that guy and be able to ask him those questions. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him through Jerusalem. Now, why does the Holy Spirit highlight women here? I love this. I absolutely love this. Remember, this culture, if you're a woman, you couldn't testify in a court of law. There's so many, they, they did not have a high view of women. Jesus elevated all of that. The rabbis wouldn't have people serving them that were women mostly. It was mostly men and all of that. And the Holy Spirit highlights these women who were looking from afar and they followed him, verse 41, and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. And many, notice the word many, many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. God values women. And women, if you look especially in Romans chapter 16 when Paul is looking back and thanking all the people that made his ministry a success, he, so many of them are women. And I just love that. If you're a woman here today, don't put limitations on how God can use you. Put the sky's the limit related to how God can use you. Just yield your life to him. He delights in the fact that you are his disciple and he wants to use you in an increasing way. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. There's better pictures of service in the New Testament lived out by women than by men. And it's beautiful because that's the greatest among us is the servant, right? It's beautiful. Verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, so he's part of the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. But that took incredible guts <laughs> to go in there and ask for the body because you're identifying with him. No one who, no one who cares for the body of Jesus is, is not going to be a disciple. So he's marking himself by asking for that. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Again, these things are supposed to take a long time. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted, granted the body of, to Joseph. And then he brought, bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. And that's important because the skeptics are going to say they went to the wrong tomb. Oh, they just went to the wrong tomb. The tomb was empty because it was the wrong tomb. They knew exactly where that tomb was. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They went to the correct tomb. 
So it's a beautiful expression of worship. We can't miss Joseph of Arimathea's expression of worship. Just think how hard it would be to take him down from the cross. Just think what you would see, what you would smell, how your heart would be broken, and you were having to do this and take that care. And you had to do it in a hurry because there was the Sabbath and all of that and everything, and you were taking a risk by identifying with Jesus at that time and he bought the best for him to bury him, to wrap him and all of that. Just a beautiful picture of worship. So many places for our, for our hearts to go to think about what he did for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we are dumbfounded and awestruck by what Jesus did for us. Lord, would you use these verses in our hearts to make us into the men and women that you've called us to be. Thank you, Jesus, that you went through all of that. We recognize that you didn't have to, but you chose to. And in a sense, you did have to because of your love for us. And we want to live lives worthy of your sacrifice, God. I pray for all of us here. I pray that we would grow in holiness. Help us, Lord, to grow in holiness. Help us to grow in living lives that are pleasing to you with every thought, motive. Help us to do all the things you're telling us to do that we need to. Help us to live lives of of love. Help us to live lives of availability, available to have your spirit direct us at any given moment to minister to an unbeliever and preach the gospel to them or minister to a believer to encourage them to use a spiritual gift that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your body, not just in this fellowship, Lord, but all around this city and this world. We pray that you'd bring your body together in unity. We pray, Lord, that our lives would represent worship in every way. And as I'm praying, we're continuing an attitude of prayer. If there's anyone here that you need to accept Jesus, you need to surrender your life to Jesus and you know it, I don't know what your beliefs are. I don't know if you've gone to church your whole life, if you believe in God. But right now, you know that you need to surrender to him. You need to give your life to him. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you and lead you in a prayer to receive him. Is there anyone here? It's okay if no one's here that fits into that category. But if you're here, raise your hand. You're not joining this church. God may place you in a whole different place. That's fine. It's none of our business. But if this is your day, we don't want you to walk out of here not being totally surrendered to Christ and not living for him. So if there's anyone here, you need to accept Christ, go ahead and raise your hand. And I'd like to pray for you. Anyone at all? Lord, as we continue to pray and as we continue to worship, Lord, Prepare our hearts now as we get ready to sing to you, to lift all these things up to you in worship. We celebrate you and what you did for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.